Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Welcome to Read Smart, the official podcast of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Non-Fiction. I'm Shahid Abari, author, critic and academic, and I'll be hosting this episode of Read Smart while my colleague Razia Iqbal is away. The Bailey Gifford Prize celebrates the best non-fiction books in every field, ranging from culture and philosophy to science and politics. We're immensely grateful to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous sponsorship of this podcast. Today, we're talking about how economic changes affect writers in different genres. I'm joined by Vicky Price, former joint head of the UK Government Economic Service and author of a number of books, including the critically acclaimed Women vs. Capitalism and Greek Economics, and Joan C. Williams, legal scholar, founding director of the Centre for Work-Life Law and author of award-winning books such as Unbending Gender, Why Family and Work Conflict and What to Do About It, and Reshaping the Work-Family Debate, Why Men and Class Matter. Thank you both for joining us. Hello, Vicky. Hello, Joan. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for involving me. It's lovely to have you. I, I, shall we get, get stuck in? As economics, as, as writers like John Kay contend, become the prisoner of mathematical models that are divorced from the reality of lived experience. Joan? Well, I think there are, um, there are really two, in the United States, there are really two subfields in social science that have really become the prisoner of uh, mathematical models. One is economics and the other is political science. And um, as a, uh, I'm not a social scientist, but I'm an avid consumer of social science from many different fields. I mean, something has definitely been gained um, through the um, increase in, in rigor that that kind of formal mathematical modeling brings, but something is definitely lost and that, you know, Mm. if you only have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And there are a lot of, a lot of problems that are difficult to measure. And therefore it's very difficult to address them in a formal mathematical model. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned a hammer because perhaps we should say to our listeners that there's some, major sawing going on in your garden right now there's a if anybody can pick up that vague noise it's a tree coming down um I hope that's not a metaphor for the economy Jane um Vicky what do you think of this question uh, of the the mathematical models or the mathematical mode of economy that seems quite divorced from lived reality well, models have dominated uh, sort of the economic analysis because, of course, you're trying to learn from historical facts. So you have to have your data and try and see whether correlations exist. And you're trying to calculate what various parts of the economy might do, particularly if you're trying to make any predictions, how, for example, people react right now, will react in the future because of the cost of living crisis. Modeling the consumer has always been incredibly difficult. But what we also know is that historical data may not be a good indicator of what's going to happen next. And uh, we've had so many crises. We've been in uncharted waters, if we can use that metaphor, both with COVID and, of course, now with what's happening and the impact of the war in the Ukraine. So models may give us some idea, but they may not give us everything. Uh, a lot is also predicated on, on getting the right information from surveys, you know, what they're telling us about intentions, what they're telling us by the way that people are feeling. There are all sorts of different 
aspects that can be brought into economics, plus rethinking, really, you know, whether some of the, the assumptions we had made about uh, behaving in a logical way, so rationality in your decisions, so being mm-hmm. perfectly rational human beings doesn't seem to be what's happening. And we have had Nobel Prize winners win um, Nobel Prizes because they have studied sort of irrational exuberance or irrational behavior. So we can't assume anything, really. So a rethink is probably needed. And I think there is a lot going on right now in redefining mm. what students learn at university when they do economics. There, there has been a, a shift, hasn't there, in, uh, in, in economic writing? Uh, there, there's a sense, I think, in the, over the last 20 years, perhaps, that writers are trying to make extremely complex problems more understandable, comprehensible for the general public. But but is there a part of financial capitalism, a little bit like quantum mechanics, that is just simply too complex for, for lay readers to understand? Or can everything be legible to a poor reader like me, Vicky? Of course, there isn't anything mystical about economics, and uh, you shouldn't classify uh, yourself as you did because I'm, I'm <laughs> sure you'd understand it perfectly and I think all the listeners would as well uh, but what is really interesting and, and really important I think is to not jump into conclusions just because you look at two sets of data and mm-hmm. you think there is a correlation there for there because you know I don't know uh, the weather was really nice and at the same time you know GDP did rather well so the two may have absolutely nothing to do with it <laughs> and you do need your both your statistical and mathematical and econometrics um training to see whether there is uh, you know there is a causality there that you can mm-hmm. define because you can jump into serious policy conclusions and make amazing mistakes in your policy by just looking at a couple of trends and saying oh well obviously these two are linked and we should be doing a or b or c uh, and that is quite important in the area for example of taxation if you raise it tax you know you may collect a little bit more but are you actually going to lose lots of people who are not going to want to either work or move their money elsewhere countless uh, attempts have been made to decide whether it works one way or the other way by Mm. looking at different tax systems in different countries. Uh, But you've really got to use that uh, tightness, if you like, in terms of your analysis to come to the right conclusions. And that really matters. And very often what you find is that policymakers simply ignore the evidence that's there or assume correlations where they exist but actually don't tell you anything about how the real world works. Mm. The other thing, if I can jump in, um, and this is related, although not the same as the mathematical focus, is that the major stream in economics um, until recently was focused on the what's called the neoclassical model of economics, the assumption um, that Vicky referred to that people are kind of freestanding individuals with rights making choices right. in a context of equal power and perfect information. And that is obviously not real life. Um, That's where behavioral economics grew out of. But in particular, that neoclassical model basically assumes away power differentials in society, which coming at this as more of a sociologist of inequality, which is the way I come at it, is a pretty big oversight. The other thing that that neoclassical model tends to overlook is that there's um, one group of individuals who are not are judged very harshly if they act as freestanding individuals with rights making choices in pursuit of their own self-interest, and that is mothers. So 
Um, and the work that um, parents, but really mostly mothers do, um, producing the next generation so that the economy can flourish uh, beyond our deaths and um, uh, taking care of elders, all of that, what we call care work, has tended to get erased by that neoclassical model of economics. Vicky, you were going to come in, I think. Yes, no, absolutely right. Uh, the interesting thing is, of course, that we don't measure it properly. So when you're talking about GDP, in other words, you know, gross domestic product, all the output of the economy, uh, you um, put it all together by measuring what you can measure. What you really cannot measure is the contribution one makes in one's spare time, whether it's through charity work, let's say, or indeed through raising children or indeed through education children or indeed through keeping the household that can happen of course both by men and women but we do know that across the world women take the biggest share what the calculations now suggest is that if you added all the women's extra work that Joan referred to you could add a third to our GDP and we've been undermeasuring it and therefore undervaluing it and therefore underpaying for it and that's a serious issue. And we tend to ignore the long-term impact of whatever it is that one does. Mm -hmm. So there is a new sort of um, whole uh, part of economics now saying we're measuring things wrong, um, wrongly. Should we you know, look at GDP in a different way? And, and that is changing, I think, the way in which perhaps economics is going to be also framed in universities in the future. And I think mm -hmm. it's a very important point. And indeed, women have tended generally uh, to be undervalued in society and mm. and also to be underpaid in society for not just for the reasons that I mentioned but more generally as well as the the system hasn't cleared the neoclassical economics would tell you there's an equilibrium somewhere you're going to find the resources are being used in the right way uh, but actually they're not there are huge uh, market failures out in the system and one of them Joan referred to which is this information asymmetry if you mm. don't have the right information then you can't make the right choices and you don't actually clear the system at the right level. Mm. It, it sounds like there's a lot to learn and, and, it's, and it's exciting to learn. I wonder if, if there are, if there are what, what's the hardest economic ideas and concepts to explain to civilians like me? How interesting. Well, I would say cost-benefit is you can, you can sort of discuss it. But when you're trying to make any decision publicly, because the government is still hugely important, um, the, we think that we're in a capitalist society, but in reality, when you look at government interventions, they're everywhere. If you look at the FTSE 100 companies in the UK, and of course you look at what's going on in the US as well, government is quite involved either regulating those firms, mm -hmm. including price regulations, or buying from those companies, or they're subject to... Uh, all sorts of competition regulations, now sanctions, etc., etc., etc. But when you're trying to decide whether a policy is going to give you the right results, is how you look at the impact that a policy will have. Quite often, people think about it in a very short-term way. But you know, when you're looking at education, it's a public good. You know what it actually gives you at the end. How can you calculate the amount you put in and the amount you get out? It goes a little bit to what Joan was saying about the contribution of women. It is a concept which is very badly mm. used by governments to justify anything like, you know, tough on crime and tough on whatever. When you don't actually look at the longer term implications of doing something, if you really mm. want to reduce crime in society, you do something completely different to what is being done right now. And that 
in the popular press is used in all sorts of ways to justify moving in a certain direction, whereas in fact the fundamentals of how you do your cost benefit, looking at environmental impacts of everything you do, for example, the worry about climate change, all those being brought together in a way that then says to the citizen, that's really the best way forward, mm -hmm. and make sure that it's done and calculated in the right way. Uh, that's the thing that um, is is missing, I think, from the calculations. In other words, getting hold of a right price for externalities. Everything we do matters for, for the climate. So why is this particular policy right. going to make a difference? Joe? I mean, the, the going back to that neoclassical model of two equal individuals with rights bargaining with perfect information, one of the interesting things that's happened in the last decades is the um, fascination of economists with psychology. Right. And um, a, a good example of that is that human beings tend to overweight information of immediate effects and seriously underweight information of long-term effects. And so the, um, that obviously has implications for climate change because the, the harsh impacts of climate change have been um, on the time, a long time horizon. Although as someone who lives in San Francisco and got up one day about a year ago and the sun, literally the sun never rose. Instead, the clouds were this eerie orange. It felt like you were on the moon. <laughs> Um, the long-term effects of climate change have quite abruptly become short-term effects, wow. and it will be interesting mm -hmm. to see whether the um, politics and economics of climate change change because of that. Mm. But the idea that economics started out with an extraordinarily simplistic and inaccurate description of human behavior, and so it's been struggling through behavioral economics to tap psychology for a more sophisticated model of human behavior um, with, I have to say as an outsider, somewhat mixed results. Hmm. You've already mentioned climate change and the role of, of women and mothers, but, and perhaps that's the answer to the question I'm going to ask you next, Joan, but what's the most important economic concept that most people should have a basic handle on, do you think? Well, if I can jump in, Vicky, you're, you're the economist, but for me, the most important um, concept that I would want people to have a handle on is the fact that um, some work is important because it's work in the market and it directly produces goods and services. Um, <clears throat> other work, though, is work in the uh, care work in the home. And without the care work in the home, the work in the market can't take place. Mm. But we tend to assume that the care work in the home is not labor, um, it's love. And it may be love, but it's still labor. Mm. And um, the, the, the erasure of those important kinds of work basically means that throughout the world, um, mothers and children are, um, are very... Uh, subject to poverty because the mother's labor, which is after all the core of what makes the economy possible, mm -hmm. both by making, uh, delivering people to work fed and clothed and by producing the next generation, that labor is coded as love, not labor. 
Mm. Love is a, a form of labour. I can get a handle on that. Thank you. Vicky, what do you think? Well, it's w- even worse than that because motherhood is penalised quite uh, considerably by the market. Uh, what we find both here and in, in lots of other countries, whether it's the US, whether it's the rest of Europe, is that uh, once you have your first child, your the gap in your earnings starts to increase and continues to increase for a good 12 to 15 years after that happens. And quite a lot of women then move into you know, roles which are below their skill level and they, or they work part-time, their annual earnings are considerably lower than would otherwise have been. So the real problem that we have is that you end up with the very large sort of majority of the population um, actually earning a lot more less than, than they should through their lifetime with a greater likelihood of the women who tend to occupy the lower pay positions falling into poverty. And also, of course, that has huge implications for their children. So Joan talked about the importance of educating your children, the love you give to them. Uh, but obviously, you still need to be able to buy food and, uh, and uh, also pay for the energy that is required for the home and have conditions in homes that allow the child to develop. And we know that the poorer you are and the more crammed the conditions are, what psychologists are telling us is that the, and sociologists is that the worse the child does uh, eventually at uh, both in terms of educational achievements, but also in life later mm-hmm. on. So uh, there, there are, you know, lots of added issues there, which, you know, of course, mean that the economy doesn't operate at the right level. But I think one of the the really interesting points that Joan made as well earlier is to do with behaviour and psychology. And one of the issues that we have to deal with, particularly when we look at climate change or when we also look at the employment of women and the long-term impact that this has, is that people have this um, short-term preference. So the discount rate is such that they, they... are much more interested in what's going to happen now in the next year and a lot less interested in what's going to happen later. So they don't you know, put the right value, if you like, to anything that might happen in future years. So a lot of what uh, you know, behavioral economics is trying to do is, is nudge people into uh, you know, using psychologist tricks, if you like, to get people to do things which they would otherwise not contemplate doing now, like, for example, investing in pensions, by making it almost compulsory for this to happen at work. So you you get round this time preference that people have um, by you know getting into there and, and uh, intervening to close this market failure again, if I may call it that, by government action, by, by using, of course, either psychology or other means to ensure that your long-term aims are in fact met and that you end up being more prosperous in the long term. It won't happen by just having these two individuals that are making decisions which are supposedly rational, but in the end of the day, maybe bad for everybody. During an economic downturn, what are the signs and who will be hit hardest by it? Joan, perhaps? In the United States, we are definitely, um, we have um, higher inflation in the United States now than we've had in, in many, many decades. And it's very clear who has, who has, going to be hurt by that. It's people with lower incomes, um, both low-income white people and, of course, tradi- uh, disproportionately people of color. Um, so it's been really interesting for me in the United States to see the reluctance of elites in the U.S. to take inflation seriously. And um, they finally are, <laughs> but it's because inflation has much less harsh effects on 
elites than it does non-elites. So the, the central bank in the United States, the Fed, is finally taking it seriously and beginning to um, raise interest rate rates, which have been effectively zero in the U.S. for a long, long time. And um, it's unclear whether we're going to end up in a recession, but it's, it's very clear we don't have very much choice um, about raising interest rates. But there's sort of a silver lining to that cloud and in that raising interest rates in the United States has made, has driven up housing prices unconscionably so that the level of homeownership in the United States has been falling sharply. Um, and that's feeding the economic anger that's incident in the United States to the very unequal distribution of economic growth. Mm. Well, uh, I mean, your your question is, is correct. And of course, we're going to end up um, sounding miserable. Uh, but what, we had COVID, of course, and we had the problems there when the economies all shrunk. The US one shrunk less than others uh, in the G7, in fact, the least. Uh, of course, you know, China managed to grow over that period after a very initial drop. So it's been unequal in the sense of different countries being hit differently. So in Southern Europe, for example, when nobody was allowed to travel, you know, tourism, which is very important for them, collapsed, and their economies, of course, fell even further. So as they're picking up, uh, it's also quite unequal in terms of how mm -hmm. they are recovering, and governments have had to intervene very, very significantly. But it looked like things were moving in the right direction. Yes, of course, inflation was rising because we had supply constraints, you know, if you close everything down or you cancel all your orders, uh, you don't want any commodities anymore, oil prices went negative for a while. Well, you know, once you pick up and one can't respond very easily, uh, you end up with the problems of high inflation. That's why most banks, central banks, believe that we were going to have a transitory period of inflation. It was all going to get back to normal. And then, of course, we had the war mm -hmm. in the Ukraine. And, and that has completely messed up anyone's predictions of this being, uh, you know, just a transitional issue. And it was understandable that the central banks wouldn't react negatively because we have had periods in the past when we've been uh, recovering from, the, for example, the financial crisis. And if you look back at what happened in the Eurozone in 2011, you know, we were all, you know, just getting out of it. And then interest rates were raised in the Eurozone when in fact things were slowing down already and it put people back into recession. So interest rate increases are not necessarily the answer, particularly when you've got a, a problem which is pretty universal and pretty global. All you do is you just lower growth and who suffers from that? Um, the people at the lower end most definitely suffer. Yes, of course, share prices are going down now again and perhaps the share owning class will also suffer. Um, but loads of retail investors in the US, they will suffer. They are the normal mm. people, you know. So uh, I'm not completely convinced that just raising interest rates is going to do it. But there is an issue about inequality that has developed, which needs to be addressed, which might get worse now with what's happening. But during COVID, of course, low interest rates encouraged a huge increase in asset prices and generally dimension houses, which have increased practically everywhere very cheap to borrow. Nobody was investing in anything else. So share prices even went up in a number of areas. And the government was able to borrow very easily and very cheaply everywhere uh, because of that. There wasn't anything anything else to do with one's money. But those who had assets did incredibly well, not just those who had houses, uh, but but any other asset that you, might ha you may have had. So you've seen that the 10 richest billionaires have doubled their wealth since COVID started. And you've seen what's going on in the tech sector, had been going on, of course, now some shares are falling, uh, but it has actually increased this inequality. 
and government's ability to redress that is, is quite difficult. Maybe the market will do it for us. Maybe it will. So, uh, but in the process, I think lots of people would be hurt as well. Mm-hmm. Can, can we talk about globalization? Do, do, do you both think, as some commentators now say, that the age of globalization is over? Joan, what do you think? No. <laughs> the age of globalization is not over, but I I think what they're talking about is the um, era during which, for a business, the only consideration was driving down wages um, and therefore relocating your factories to the low the le- the lowest um, wage level countries. That has become a lot more. Cop- a complicated calculation um, because businesses built extremely efficient supply chains. What they saw under COVID is they did not build resilient um, supply chains. And countries in my, the United States, like my own, realized that these extraordinarily efficient supply chains also, for example, left us without Uh, personal protective equipment in the early part of the pandemic because we had basically been buying most or uh, close to all of it from China. And China was no longer interested in selling it to us. Mm -hmm. And so um, you've been searching for a cheerful note, and here's one. Uh, uh, One of the things that has been driving economic populism of not very attractive sorts in both uh, Europe and the U.S., has been um, the inequality of income and and specifically the regional inequality. So the north of England is very much of a rust belt. The the center of the United States is very much of a rust belt. And now there's a lot of talk, unclear how much of it's going to translate into action, about what's being called um, uh, onshoring as opposed to offshoring bringing some of that manufacturing capability closer to home because we suddenly realized the um, fragility of globalized supply chains. Vicky? Yeah, I'd say that's uh, absolutely true. I have to say I agree with with Joan on this. Um, Now, of course, here in the UK, uh, we have the added problem that uh, our supply chains have been badly affected by Brexit and we've seen quite a substantial reduction in our imports from the EU, which used to be sort of coming in very easily. Uh, they still do, but somehow or other, our direction of trade has changed, which has affected supply chains even more. Um, because, you know, there is such a thing in economics as the gravity model. We talked about modeling early on. Um, so, which basically tells you, you trade more easily with those neighbors of yours, which are closest to you, because there are fewer costs involved. Now, the moment you start erecting costs, then it makes life much more difficult. So, a lot of discussion about changing the direction of trade and importing from other countries, which, of course, you know, is more expensive at the end of the day. Uh, transport costs, climate change, all that sort of stuff is there. But, uh, I mean, on the positive side, nevertheless, uh, you know, what we saw when COVID, uh, where we were having discussions about supply chains issues and the end of globalization through COVID as well, of course, mm-hmm. uh, as we recovered and those supply chains weren't working, uh, but actually trade increased very significantly. It sort of bounced back to over 10% in 2021. And even now when forecasts have been reduced, well, that's world trade, It's the forecasts are now down to 3%, which is more or less what we were <coughs> before the whole sort of crisis started. So it's not as if trade has, has stopped, but 
there is a serious, serious issue, nevertheless, that we all need to think about. Energy self-sufficiency, uh, perhaps we need to do an awful lot more on that. And of course, renewables may offer us an opportunity to do so. It's going to be costly in the transition period. Uh, what we're seeing right now is we rely entirely uh, on LNG coming from um, the US, which of course is fracking more again as well, which is interesting. But of food, that's going back to what Malthus had said originally, that's a real issue. I mean, what we're finding is that the ability to think again in terms of self-sufficiency in food uh, is absolutely you know, urgent mm. for us, uh, given that we depended so much on... So it's not cheap labour, it's just that you know plentiful supply where it sort of you know sunflowers grow and sunflower oil can come which is the ukraine so uh, how can you change that pattern how can you be more self-sufficient without a huge cost involved and you see what's happening in loads of emerging markets and the whole of africa where they're thinking of substituting wheat for something else and etc etc um and where in fact you know the the world bank is referring to it as a, a new human catastrophe in the making Mm, that that idea of of thinking again about uh, things like energy self sufficiency and food poverty, how far does there is how far is there or can there be democratic accountability for economic decisions like that? Very few electorates get a chance to to vote upon those sorts of decisions, but. How far is there democratic accountability for economic decisions and, and can there be? I don't, I'll speak for the United States. I mean, their um, neoliberal attitudes towards international trade were shared by both Democrats and Republicans, both of our political parties, basically until, until Trump, until 2016. Mm -hmm. And there had always been... Um, serious grumpiness on the left about neoliberal uh, trade policies, but they were not, sh re that was not reflected in either of the political parties. And one of the accomplishments of Trump, and I have to say, I'm not a fan, but one of the accomplishments of Trump has been to change that attitude in the United States so that now um, uh, the an uh, anxiety about the United States relationship um, with China and trade is shared both by Democrats and Republicans. It's really been a, a sharp shift. Now, there's also constraints. I mean, we're Americans. We like our stuff. And a lot of our stuff comes from China. So I'm not, that's the, the, the new political consensus is not, is very much constrained by reality. But there's been a really sharp shift in our democracy on attitudes towards uh, neoliberal attitudes towards mm. trade. Well, there is a problem, really, that um, protectionism is on the rise. There's no doubt about that. Not so much in terms of tariffs, because, of course, you know, under Biden, we've seen that tariffs, some of the tariffs, particularly to the EU, were um, reduced as well, and to the UK now. He had imposed aluminium and steel tariffs as well. And, and the, there is a, a bit of a rethink more generally and a bit more liberalism that we see coming from the US, even though obviously the war in the Ukraine has made things considerably worse temporarily, one hopes. Um, but the population, if you ask them, would probably want to be protectionists. At the same time, they still want all the products that come in from elsewhere, if they can get them. And they also want to travel and they want the freedom to go to places. In fact, 
the, the Brits, you know, the moment you give them any small chance to leave the country, they do <laughs> in very large numbers. Don't quite know why, but there we go. Um, because the weather's been not too bad recently here. Uh, so, so there is there is that uh, the protectionism which is which is there. But if uh, we were talking about sort of closing the UK and and perhaps sort of depriving people from whatever it is that they had before and doing it all here and paying more for it, I think uh, the British consumer generally. You know, really makes quite rational decisions as to how they want their money to be spent, and they uh, probably won't like it. Uh, they want a little bit more of security. There's no doubt about that, but up to a point would be my guess. Can we, to close, can we come back to the question of of economic writing for a general audience? You are both wonderfully accomplished writers who've made interventions in the public conversation about the role of women and the economy and class. Um, recently, we've seen writers like Michael Lewis and Oliver Bullough, um writing exposés of aspects of our current economic systems. Who are the writers that you think are making the most important interventions for a general audience? Who should we be reading Joan. You know, I'm going to bump that to Vicky, well, I think. <laughs> Good strategy. Well, um, it's interesting you asked that question about the, you know, people are very avid readers now of, of economics. Mm. And I don't mean economic textbooks, but things we put it simple. But what they need to do and have mm. is a, a punchy title, like you know, what Thomas... Piketty producers, uh, even though it's very, very long. Capital, yes. Uh, yes, and the book is very long, um, but which just you know epitomizes, if you like, the worries that they have at the time, such as increase in inequality. You know what's happening to our system. You know why are we seeing you know big chunks of our economy not doing particularly well, and they they go for that uh, and. You know, including Yanis Varoufakis, of course, mm -hmm. who wrote very vividly about his experiences being the finance minister of Greece at the time of the deeper sort of euro crisis when Greece was almost thrown out of the euro. And he wrote this book, Adults in the Room, uh, where he was explaining the sort of the workings of the EU, but also what the issues were in Greece. So he's an economics professor. So the ability to turn uh, to real experiences and real facts into something that people can follow and understand. You've got to be very, very careful, of course, that you don't end up with people being so sort of manipulated into thinking a certain thing because the evidence that is presented doesn't necessarily support the conclusion. Because as we said earlier, there may not have been a, a proper causality. There may have mm -hmm. been a correlation, but you can't actually prove that you know A led to B and they led to C. You've got to think again. So you've got to watch it that, that, that those writers who become quite popular are also not influencing perhaps policy in the wrong direction or people's views in the wrong direction. But of course, you know, you can choose which writers to to read after all. So there is a there is a lot more of that uh, accessibility that we're seeing right now. A lot of economic writers mm. write for the general public and do rather well as a result, you know, bestsellers. 
um, which is, you know, really good and gives hope to the rest of us. Well, Vicky, I look forward to your next book. It's a very snappy title. Joan, did you th- <laughs> did you think of something? Um, I actually am reading a lot of economics these days, um, but not of it, not popular economics. So I'm mm-hmm. just going to mention two authors whose work um, should be popularized, um, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to help do so. They're both American um, economists. One is named Raj Chetty who has done amazing work in the United States, really in a rigorous, quantified way, showing the sort of the death of the American dream, um, that 90% of Americans used to do better than their parents, but now um, it's less than 50. The other economist in the United States, he's actually, I think, not trained as an economist, but he's functioning as one, is named David Ortor. He's of MIT. And he also has been talking about the the geographic distribution of economic growth in the United States and the political implications of that. So, um, sorry, I don't read popular economics. I just read um, dense economics, but some of it's very important. But well, well, when we say popular economics, we don't mean sort of downgrading economics. It's just economics that, yeah. uh, well, that we take should... a particular issue and and explain it to, to, to the public or, or you know, talk about their own experiences. A, a yes. famous diplomat, George Kennan, once said to my father, you know, you should, if you understand something, you should be able to write it so that any, uh, at that point he said, this was 19, probably 1960, any college educated man can understand it. And my husband actually said to me once, you know, if you really understand something, you can write the treatise, the article and the bumper sticker. <laughs> the bumper sticker. It, I look forward to that too. Raj Shetty and David Autor for some hard but rewarding homework for us. Thank you, Joan. And thank, thank you both for this really, really educational conversation. It's fascinating listening to you both. Uh, we'd also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction, you can visit our website or follow us on Twitter at BG Prize. Join us next time to hear more about nonfiction writing. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.